welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. On this podcast, we'll talk about things like purpose, legacy, love, influence, sex, success, wealth, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review if you've enjoyed what you've heard, subscribe, and join the other thousands and thousands of changemakers in our community on Facebook, or go to www.mantalks.com for more blog posts, podcasts, and videos from our live event. So today on our podcast, I have an absolutely incredible guest and one of the best and possibly the most geekiest conversations I've ever had the pleasure to have. So with me today is Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, PhD, uh, and she is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with an appointment at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital in Psychiatry and Radiology. She's received a National Institute of Health Directors Pioneer Award for her groundbreaking research on emotions in the brain and is an elected member of the Royal Society of Canada, and she currently resides in Boston. So on today's episode, we dive into her latest research and her latest book called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And really what this episode is all about is how your brain, the neuroscience behind how your emotions are made. So the neuroscience behind how your emotions are made. So we dive into things like understanding and searching for the emotional fingerprint in the brain. So how we can see emotions show up in the neurology of our brain. Uh, We dive into how emotions are constructed. We look at the universal myth of emotions and how they're made. Uh, We talk about physiology and how physiology can slightly shift our emotional state, but she unpacks some of the uh, some of the bias around, you know, hacking our emotions through our physiology. Uh, and finally, she dives into how important language is in terms of shifting and impacting our emotional state and, and our long-term uh, emotional well-being and mental well-being. So this is an absolutely jam-packed episode. If you're like me, you're going to want to grab a pen and a paper to write down some of the incredible stuff that she's got to share here today. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been I've been following along with your work and uh, Ansar, the, one of the team members, when he booked you on the podcast, called me, FaceTimed me and was so excited uh, to have you on because he loved your book. So this is this is an honor. So thank you. Oh, I'm really excited to talk with you. As as we always do, I'd love to start off with with just asking the simple question of tell us, tell the listeners uh, a story about a defining moment that has made you who you are today. Well, it's it's really hard to just pick one because I think in everybody's lives there are a number of touchstone moments. For me, the one that I often come back to is when I was in labor with my daughter. So she's eighteen years old now. But when I was in labor with her, I was really very afraid. Um, actually, I wasn't afraid of being a mother. I was afraid of the physical consequences of the delivery. And I wasn't really sure 
that I was up to it. Um, it was, you know, likely to be a, a painful and um, trying uh, circumstance. And I was really terrified of what might happen. And what's interesting to me is that oftentimes in my darkest moments now, when I'm feeling most encumbered by life or when there are great difficulties uh, that I'm facing, I often go back to that time and think about what it felt like to be faced with something that was really, really scary and face it head on and surmount it. You know, we in the end had a successful delivery and, you know, everything was fine. But it was really, it was one of those moments where you have to look your own mortality in the face. And sometimes in this particular case, look the mortality of, of uh, somebody else who, who you are desperate to meet. And also part of this event for me was while I was waiting for uh, an epidural, I was given a shot of narcotics that, which I'd never had before, which allowed me to very, very distinctly for the first time in my life, make it, I could experientially distinguish between discomfort and distress. This was a, I would say from a science, from a scientist standpoint, this was a, a fantastic opportunity to realize that we have a lot more control over our experience than we might realize that we have, because it's actually possible to make those distinctions between physical discomfort and affective distress or emotional distress, uh, even without the use of um, narcotic substances, it turns out. So it just left me really curious about the nature of consciousness in a way that really shaped the work that I was to do uh, later on. Hmm. So fascinating. And, and was that a part of what put you on this track? Or have you always just been a little bit curious about the brain's impact on our emotional state? No, I really what I've always been curious about, to be honest, is self-deception. I've been curious about how it is that people can be faced with evidence that is inconsistent with their own beliefs, and yet find a way to completely ignore that evidence and maintain their beliefs uh, in the face of it. And when I was in graduate school, I actually went to graduate school to study the self, you know, to study self-esteem, people's beliefs about themselves and so on. And as a, I was trained as a clinical psychologist, so originally, so I was very interested in self-deception. And what I, while I was doing some of my research, I found I was having a lot of difficulties replicating existing studies that had been published. And the main problems were the measures of emotion. And so I thought, well, I'll just dip my toe into this literature on emotion. I'll figure out how to measure it more objectively. That'll solve the problems. And then I'll just move forward with my research. And instead, what I discovered was that really since the time that people were writing about emotion, there's a particular view that has been, I guess, adhered to in Western culture, and that the evidence doesn't really support it. And in fact, it's never really supported it. But yet that view, that belief about what emotions are has persisted through millennia. So it was the ultimate scientific self-deception in a sense that just really captivated me. And I, I've sort of stuck with it ever since. Incredible. Uh, I love that. And I love that pursuit of understanding self-deception. I think that's 
that's something really powerful. Have you have you seen that a, you know a lot of people go through a phase of self deception in their in their life, like in their late teens or you know in, into their twenties? Is is it something that people have to battle with in order to achieve a certain level of success? Because I know for myself and from what I've seen from a lot of the people that I work with is that they seem to go through this experience of dealing with self deception. And then once they understand that that sort of process or how self-deception shows up in their life, it seems to be sort of like the unlock code, if you will, in a lot of ways for them to achieve the the goals and, and some of the achievements that they're working towards. Has that been your been your observation as well? Yes and no. I would say largely yes. But I think, you know, I think all of us have to have some optimal level of optimism, you know, some, uh, there's an optimal level of um, believing that you can do more than you can, believing that maybe you're a little bit better than you actually are. The research shows really clearly that if you have a, a slight positive illusion, you know, about yourself and about your partner, uh, you'll do better in your life and, and in your relationships. But when the chips are down and it's important to accept critical feedback, it's also really important to be able to do that. And I think, so while it is true, I think that there are some developmental phases where self-deception might reign supreme, maybe, uh, when compared to others. It's also the case that there are some people who never really learn to calibrate their willingness for critical feedback. I think a really successful person, whether in their personal life or professional life, kind of knows when to quell the voices of criticism and knows when to pay really serious attention to them. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's, a great, that's a great way of putting it. It's almost like, um, for me, the, the distinction is relentless optimism versus delusional optimism. And, you know, some, some people sort of buy into this uh, dream state that everything is just going to be fine and work, work out regardless of the evidence that's there. And it kind of puts them in this lackadaisical state where they, they don't actually work towards the things that they're wanting versus relentless optimism, where they seem to do whatever it takes in order to make it work, even though they have the mindset that is still going to work out. So let's let's dive in your book here a little bit because you've got some incredible stuff and I don't want to I don't want to waste any time. So you know your your book is how emotions are made and it's really really interesting. It's the secret life of the brain and you've got some some really cool stuff in here and how you kind of open it or what, what you talk about in the beginning is you know you talk about the two thousand year old assumption. Uh, how is how has that shaped us up until now, and what is this two thousand year old assumption? Yeah, so the two thousand year old assumption is just this idea of where our views of emotion came from. So if you look back, for example, into ancient Greece, you can see that Plato wrote about human nature, and so he wrote about emotion and the nature of human emotion, and in particular, he had this view of the human mind, which he referred to as the psyche, um, which is pretty much still with us today. And this is the idea that part of the human mind is is um, devoted to appetites like the desire for food, you know, hunger, thirst, the desire for sex, and so on. Part of hu the human mind is devoted to emotion. And he depicted uh, the appetites and emotions as these two wild stallions, which were controlled by a charioteer which was the representation of rationality or cognition, right? So the idea is that 
the the moral person, the virtuous person, um, and then later on we would say, you know, the mentally healthy person is the person who is dominated, whose rationality dominates their um, their inner beast. You know, their uh, that that are the deeply buried um, appetites and emotions which we need to control in order to have a productive life. And so this view of the human mind as a battleground between emotion and cognition, between thoughts and feelings, is really still with us today. You can see it. It's infused in the science that people do. It's the basis of the legal system in the United States and Canada and many other Western countries. It's something that you can see in industry. There are, you know, the education of um, CEOs and and other um, people who run companies. I think more recently there's been an appreciation for the wisdom of emotion and the way that emotion can provide uh, help and, and wisdom to your life. But more generally, the assumption still is there that thoughts and feelings are very different things, that they live in different parts of the brain, that they have different functions in the mind. And the interesting thing to me is that neuroscience evidence just doesn't support this distinction at all. The brain you can't look to the brain and see emotional parts of the brain and parts of the brain for rationality or thinking. And so we have this view of the human mind, which doesn't really match what our understanding is, our best understanding is of what the brain, how the brain is structured and how it works. Very interesting. And so, and so the, the sort of classic view is more along the lines that thoughts and emotions both happen to us. Yes, exactly. So in particular, the idea is that we have these emotion circuits. Well, actually, I mean, the the po popular view of the brain is pretty much Plato's theory kind of tattooed onto the brain, right? This idea that there's a lizard brain and then wrapping around the lizard brain is a limbic system, which is where emotions live. And that wrapped around this is the cerebral cortex, which control the home of emotion, uh, home of cognition, which controls uh, your lizard brain and your limbic system. And in fact, that's not at all the way the brain evolved. That's not really how it's structured to work. We don't have mythical emotion circuits buried deep inside a, some kind of limbic system. Emotions are, are not our reactions to the world. They are our constructions. They're how we make sense of what's going on inside our own bodies in relation to the world. So emotions are more of a reaction to our own internal thoughts about the external environment? Not exactly. So the way the brain, the brain is, first of all, structured not to react. It's structured to predict. So your brain is actually constantly guessing what's going to happen next. And these guesses are the basis of your emotions. And this is happening entirely outside your awareness. I should also say these guesses are also the basis of your thoughts and the basis of your perceptions, that your, your brain isn't structured to react to things in the world. It's structured to predict. Mm. And so because I've heard of the brain being referred to as a, as a pattern recognizer, and so a lot of that predictive mechanism is about recognizing patterns, which are then assimilated in the brain. And that's, that's how we predict things. Is that, is that roughly accurate? Yes. So your brain is, so at, at this very moment, 
right now, you are, it seems to you as if you're listening to the words that I'm saying and reacting to them. But in fact, you're based on your years and years of experience with the patterns of various sounds and what they mean. Your brain is actually predicting every single word that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> and if I had said some other orifice, like my nose or some other part of my body, you <laughs> would have been really surprised. So <laughs> your, your brain is using the patterns of the present moment to generate its own patterns um, that are basically like predictive signals that start to ch change the firing of your sensory neurons and your motor neurons without your awareness. So mm. just in the same way that if I asked you to keep your eyes open, looking straight forward, and imagine in your mind's eye a Macintosh apple of the kind that you would eat, right? So maybe it's red with a little bit of green. Um, can you imagine that apple in your mind's eye? Mm -hmm. And if you... Can you imagine the sound of the crunch when you bite into the apple and maybe um, the, the tart sort of sweet taste of the apple? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So right there, your brain is changing the firing of its own sensory neurons so that you see the ghost of an apple, that you can hear the crunch, that you can taste um, the taste of the apple. Those are the kinds of changes that in science we call them simulations these simulations actually are your brain what your brain is generating when it generates predictions so it's predicting based on the pattern of sensations in this moment it's predicting what sensations are going to occur in the next moment and what actions are required and it starts to prepare those sensations and those actions by changing the firing of its own neurons in advance of the moment. Then the moment arrives and sensory inputs arrive from the body and from the world and either confirm those predictions and they become your experience uh, or they change those predictions. That is that you learn the error, the prediction error, you learn that new information, which allows you to predict better the next time. Hmm. So, so interesting. I feel like based on what you just described and that predictive mechanism, I understand the sort of like deconstruction of some of my past intimate relationships <laughs> a, little, <laughs> a little bit better, yeah. you know, like where, where we're preconditioned to, to sort of identify things and predict what's going to happen next, which puts us into an emotional state. Um, so, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so, you know, it, one of the things that you talk about is that you, you sort of say or, or argue that emotions are, are constructed, constructed by our brains. And so can you unpack a little bit for our listeners, how, how your research has sort of shown this or what, you know, why you've come to come to believe this? Sure. So I should say that this is a scientific theory and in science, a theory is not just a set of ideas. It's a set of ideas that are backed up by a tremendous amount of evidence. The ideas that uh, I've put forward really derive from scientific evidence that comes not only from the structure and function of the brain, but also understanding something about physiology, um, looking at cross-cultural 
emotion experience and perception. So my lab has gone to Namibia to study the Himba tribe that lives in rural northwestern Namibia near the Angola border. We've gone to Tanzania to study the Hadza, who are the last tribe of hunter-gatherers in Africa who've been hunting and gathering really continuously since the Pleistocene era. Um, it, the work comes from developmental psychology, from cognitive psychology. You know, it's, it's a, a broad swath of, of evidence. And what we see pretty clearly are a couple of things. One is that emotions aren't things. It's not the case that you always smile when you're happy and cry when you're sad. It's not the case that your blood pressure always goes up when you're angry and uh, that your heart races when you're afraid. There are actually no facial movements, bodily changes, or patterns of brain activity that uniquely identify any emotion from any other. Because if you think about it for a minute, you realize that people smile when they're sad and they cry when they're angry and they scream when they're happy. And you can, you know, tremble in fear, jump in fear, freeze in fear, scream in fear, hide in fear, attack in fear, even laugh in the face of fear. So when it comes to emotion, variety is the norm. That's the first thing to realize. The second thing we've discovered is that when your brain is creating these predictions based on past experience, these another way to think about these predictions is that they are their concepts. So a concept is just a group of representations in your brain that have the same kind of purpose or function. So what your brain is doing really when it's creating a set of predictions, it's it's actually creating concepts that you use to make sense of what is going on inside your own body in relation to the world. And if you don't have knowledge about an emotion in advance, it's really hard for you to experience it or perceive it in other people. Yeah. So is this, you know, in, in sort of mainstream culture, we see a lot of of emphasis being put on self-awareness and the in the importance of self-awareness and is is this why it's is this why it's so important is this why it's being talked about so much because if we can't identify it in ourselves we can't see it in others and then we become sort of i guess socially blind in in a lot of ways yes in fact there is a name for it it's called experientially blind right so if you don't have a a concept for an emotion and you can't make that concept on the fly. So, you, you know, brains have this amazing capacity to do what we call conceptual combination, which means it can take bits and pieces of your past experience and make brand new instances of concepts that you've never encountered before. But if you're unable to do that for whatever reason, um, you will be blind actually to the uh, emotions of others who, who, who can make those emotions, you know. Mm, interesting, because yeah, I, I remember writing, you know, uh, not reading, but uh, not writing, but reading some of your studies where you talked about how, you know, someone's someone can look at somebody else's face and ask them to identify an emotion, and people were consistently getting other people's emotions wrong, like confusing one emotion with another one, and so is this is this part of that? Like, how does that show up in in everyday life? Well, it is part of that. So I think, for example, 
you know, you and I um, are both Canadian, I just learned. And but we both live, we both grew up in, in a, a fairly westernized culture, I imagine. And so even though you're a man and I'm a woman and we've had somewhat different experiences, we've also had probably a number of experiences that are pretty common. And that common base of experiences allows us to communicate pretty well. So it's not necessarily the case that if I raise my eyebrows when you're talking that I'm surprised that your what your brain will do is it will be able to use your past experience all those many instances when people have raised their eyebrows in a particular situation right so it's again it's reading a particular pattern and then predict what comes next now if you happen to be raised in a culture uh, or have a set of experiences in your life where raising eyebrows is not a thing that people do, you might just completely ignore that uh, set of movements on my face. Or, you know, it could be that you grew up in a situation where raised eyebrows mean something completely different other than uh, surprise, in which case you would completely misread uh, your you be your brain would be guessing about what my raised eyebrows mean and uh and you'd guess wrong you know for example my husband uh when he's thinking really hard when he's concentrating he makes a full on scowl face which is the stereotype of anger in our culture um and people often guess that he's angry when in fact he's just concentrating really hard <laughs> yeah i i get that one so can people confuse emotions that are considered to be far apart, like happiness and sadness or happiness and, and fear? Yes. So there's some lovely research that's done by uh, Hillel Aviezar at Hebrew University, where he's shown that if you look at the most intense moments of emotion, that is, usually he's looking at, well, I would say in one set of studies, he's looking at people who have won or lost tennis matches, you know, like Wimbledon or, or the U.S. Open or things like that. And he shows that looking at the face alone, it's impossible to tell who, who's really intensely happy and who is intensely sad. It's, um, it, it's, they look pretty much structurally similar. Um, also, it's the case that you know, as I said, sometimes people cry in happiness and sometimes they smile when they're sad. So it's very, very, in those cases, I wouldn't say that people are confusing one with the other. It's just that the facial movements that we make as humans are highly flexible. And so it's not the case. It's not meaningless what we do with our faces, but the signal value of what's in our faces is largely coordinated with everything else going on in the situation. It's not like you can just look at someone smiling and know that that means that they're happy. In fact, people smile for many, many reasons. And the base rate of smiling when you're happy is actually often lower than when you're smiling for those other reasons. Interesting. And so this kind of brings up a, an interesting question for me around quote unquote, hacking our emotional state. Because you see a lot of people out there that are talking about how you can use your physiology to alter your internal emotional or mental state. Is that something that you've seen in, in your research or sort of dove into? And do, do you think that it's possible to, to shift your internal emotional state based on your physiology? Well, I, 
I would say yes and no, which is like the perfect psychology answer, right? It depends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the, here's what the evidence shows pretty clearly. We In my lab, we just finished what we call a meta-analysis, which means we take hundreds and hundreds of studies and we combine them statistically to look for the evidence of what they say, not just a single study, you know, but hundreds of studies. And so we did this for the studies which measure uh, autonomic nervous system changes during emotion. So heart rate changes, respiration changes, skin conductance, which is related to sweat and arousal uh, that uses your sweat to um, estimate how aroused you are. Uh, I don't mean sexually necessarily, but just the uh, level of activation of your of your sympathetic nervous system and so on, how worked up you are and in stress and so on. And, and you can look across a number of studies and what you see is that there is no single nervous physiological fingerprint for emotion. It's not the case that your heart rate always goes up in fear. It's not the case that your blood pressure always goes up in anger and, and so on that the, Physical responses that you show during emotion are highly variable and depend on the situation. So measuring a face by itself, measuring the body by itself, these things do not speak for themselves when it comes to emotion. So if somebody is trying to track their heart rate or their respiratory rate and believes that it can tell them when they're something about their emotional state, being happy, angry, sad, whatever they are going to be sadly disappointed that the, it's not a problem with the technology. It's a problem with the ideas about w- what those measurements show. That being said, there are a couple of things that could be potentially useful. First of all, the technology that allows you to track your own physical states if it was combined with tracking the context in which those states emerge could be used for you to learn what your vocabulary of states is, right? So it's very possible that while there's no one physical fingerprint, no one nervous system pattern for anger, it's possible that people have vocabularies of states for anger, right? So maybe Connor, you, if we were to measure you across time and assess not just your physical patterns, but also the contexts in which they happen. Maybe you have five angers, right, that are definable. And maybe I have eight. And maybe, you know, somebody else has three. Um, And maybe some of them overlap, and maybe some of them don't. Um, You know, some of them have to overlap to some extent, right? Because I have to be able to synchronize my concepts with yours. Otherwise, you and I could not communicate right? I have to be able to understand if you and I know each other pretty well, I have to be able to understand when a scream is anger and when a scream is frustration and when a scream is elation, right? Um, So it's very possible that there are these ensembles of physical states that are diagnostic for different people, but nobody's done that kind of research yet, right? The the government won't fund it because it's too expensive and technology companies are busy spending billions of dollars attempting to read emotion, you know, find the emotion fingerprints, the physical fingerprints for emotion that will hold universally for everybody. So it's kind of a, an opportunity that's yet to be tapped. 
Mm. And yeah, I mean, just along that along that vein, do you think that there's merit, or do you even feel like it's it's morally okay for us to be researching? people's physiological responses to try and tap into their emotional and internal responses to predict buying patterns and then to sell people based on their emotional states? I know that's kind of like a loaded and and large question. (laughs) Well, you know, I guess uh, I try to take a more neutral stance and say, as long as people are aware that they're being tracked and they can give consent to being tracked or not. And as long as they, you know, as long as they know that data are being collected from them and and being used for for various purposes, then I don't see a problem with it. I do see a problem if people, you know, like if data is being collected from people and they're unaware that that's the case, I, I find that really problematic. I think people should have consent. You know, they should be able to say what their the data that they generate, what it should be used for and, and what it, what it shouldn't be used for. I also think that, you know, we, one thing we haven't talked about is the difference between simple feelings of affect and, and emotion. So your brain is predictively controlling your actions and your, the systems of your body. So in much the same way that a large company has a financial office that tracks the revenues and expenditures of its various branches and so on, you can think about your brain as the financial office of your body. You know, you're, while your brain is creating thoughts and feelings and perceptions and so on, it's also managing the budget for all the accounts in your body. So you have systems that for water, for for salt, for glucose, which is a simple sugar that uh, your cells use as a primary source of energy. Um, You have your respiratory system, your cardiovascular system, your immune system, your metabolism, and so on. And your brain has to keep all of these systems in balance. And and the most efficient way to do that is to do it predictively. So if your brain is going to stand you up, it's going to raise your blood pressure so oxygen gets to your brain before you stand otherwise you know you'll faint which would be very that would be an that would be an expenditure that you uh you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to make right and so uh, the idea is that your brain is predictively controlling your body and there are all these physical changes in your body that are occurring almost all the time and the sensations from these are the sensory inputs from these changes, your heart rate changes in heart rate and in respiration and, and blood flow and so on, make their way on a fairly regular basis to your brain. Now, you don't experience these in high definition, the way that you experience, say, visual input. You see things in high definition with a lot of detail, but you don't experience the sensations from your body in a lot of detail because if you did, you wouldn't pay attention to anything else in the outside world ever again. Philosophers call this tragic embodiment. You know, that we are, when we have very strong sensations in our bodies, we're sort of captivated by that. Our attention is grabbed and we can't really pay attention to anything else. So you feel these sensations as simple feelings of feeling great or feeling terrible, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling uh, worked up or feeling calm feeling stressed or feeling uh, quiescent and tranquil. 
And these feelings are, are with you every waking moment of your life because your body is always sending sensory information to your brain. And when they're particularly strong, your brain you, constructs emotion out of them. But you're, they're also present in your thoughts. They're present in your perceptions of other people. You know, so yesterday somebody cut me off on the mass pike. And my, in that moment, my affect became part of the, my, these simple feelings, which we call affect became part of my perception of that driver. That guy was an asshole for cutting me off, right? If you'd said to me, are you angry? I would have said, no, but he's an asshole, right? It was my affect became part of my perception of that person, not a feeling of anger. And these, so tracking your own body to learn more about your about your affective feelings and to control them better is a very very useful thing to do sometimes. Mm. Yeah, that's that's such a good point because I think that that's you know for anybody in a leadership position or if you have kids um, those those sort of reactive and and affective states are something that often people identify as wanting to be able to understand more and be able to. Um, not control, but guide, I guess would be a better word. Well, you know, these are the, fe these feelings actually lead people to see things that aren't there. They lead people to hear, th hear things that didn't happen. They um, cause judges, you know, to deny parole to people before lunch because they are mistaking the the discomfort of hunger for a distrust of the defendant uh, whereas that doesn't happen earlier in the day. They influence how managers make decisions about their direct reports, you know, whether somebody gets promoted or not, how much money that person makes. They lead police officers to see guns that aren't there um, and therefore, you know, um, take up positions to shoot people. So um, it's, uh, it's important to understand, to get a better handle on your affect and to know when to create an emotion out of it and when to just to see it for what it is, which is um, uh, related to the sensory state of your body. Yeah, yeah, in incredible. And and just to shift gears a little bit, because I, I wanted to touch on this subject. I, I've always been a little bit curious and fascinated about the the connection between emotion and language. Um, what what sort of links have you found during your research between language and emotion, uh, and and what's important for for the average everyday person to know about this link? Well, the first thing that's important to know is that the more emotion words that you know, the better off you'll be. So, the more emotion words that you know, this translates into more flexibility in your brain's ability to make different varieties of emotion. We have a name for this. We call it emotional granularity. Anybody who works in computer science or engineering will know the term granularity for meaning that something that's granular is uh, very precise and, and detailed and, and in, in our world also means uh, very tied to the specific situation in, in a very, very precise way. So granular emotions are a really good thing to be able to make because they allow you to be to, to tailor your uh, your behavior and your experiences to the situate to what the situation requires in a really, really important way. When you know more emotion words and you're more granular and you're if you're in school, uh, it helps you surprisingly not only improves your social relationships with your friends, but it actually improves your 
your math scores and science scores um, because it changes the emotional climate of a class and allows kids to learn better. If you know more emotion words and you're able to make more granular emotional experiences and, and so on, um, you cope better with stress, you drink less, you rely less on alcohol as a coping strategy. You actually, if you get sick, you recover faster um, from illness. Um, and it actually improves your ability to communicate with other people. Because, you know, let's say, Connor, you and I were talking, and I didn't have a word. So let's say the word schadenfreude. This is a word, a concept that we now have in our culture, which means feeling pleasure at somebody else's misfortune. Now, before we had that word, could I feel pleasure at somebody else's misfortune or could you? Sure, because our brains could do conceptual combination, but that would take a lot of work. And if I wanted to tell you about an instance, uh, I would have to use a lot of words to explain to you, first of all, that I felt pleasure at somebody else's misfortune, but also so that you didn't think I was a complete asshole. I would have to also tell you what happened with that person and why did I, you know, feel pleasure at that person's misfortune. And like, so what was the whole context? But with a word, I can communicate something to you that would before maybe take five or 10 minutes now with a single word. It's very, very efficient. Hmm. And so very easily I can say this one word and that can evoke in you, in your brain, a whole set of predictions um, that allows us to synchronize uh, what we are both thinking and feeling um, really, really easily. So if I say, if I tell you, well, I had a touch of schadenfreude when, you know, so-and-so got a speeding ticket, there's a whole lot packed into that, uh, that use of that single word in it, uh, that if we didn't have it, we could still communicate, but it would be super uh, inefficient to do so. Also, you, you can't teach your kids uh, this concept unless you have a word. So little babies as, as young as three months of age can actually use words. Uh, even though they don't understand what the words mean, they can use words to form concepts. And so this is an important way that children learn how to navigate. They learn about the world and they learn to navigate the world. And in fact, little infant brains are not you know, they're not miniature adult brains. They're actually brains that wire themselves to their physical and their social surroundings, including the features of the world that are called out by words. So words turn out to be super important, not just to the development of, of children, but not just to the development of their emotional intelligence and their intelligence more generally, but emotion words in particular, mental state words are really important they're like tools that allow us to regulate ourselves and each other and to communicate in a very efficient way. So in, in terms of the emotional literacy piece, it's really about understanding and, and being able to sort of label, because I know in, in therapy and in psychology, oftentimes what the therapist is doing is sort of helping to guide the person who's in therapy to understand the emotion that they're feeling and be able to label it and sort of give them that, that word to identify it. So it, it sounds like one of the biggest pieces that, that people out there can do to sort of up their emotional intelligence is to start to be able to have a, a more diverse uh, language around what their emotional states are. Absolutely. And I would also say that 
you know, there is this principle, I guess, let me say it this way. There's a principle with, when it comes to the brain, if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is true, not just for the neurons in your brain. You know, if you don't use particular neurons, they start to atrophy. It's also true for the products of the brain. So learning emotion words isn't enough. You have to use them on a fairly regular basis. So if you look at the difference, for example, between men and women and how they, and their emotional lives, men and women, you know, women believe they're more emotional than men and men tend to agree. But when you actually measure men and women in their everyday lives, they don't differ really from each other. There are some women who are very emotional and some women who are less emotional, some men who are very emotional, some men who are less emotional. What does differ is the extent to which men and women use emotion words. So women in general tend to use emotion words much more frequently than men do. In fact, we had a series of experiments once that we did where um, men were... um, they were routinely appearing to be less emotionally aware than women were. And we, we tried all sorts of ways to, you know, improve their emotional awareness. And in the end, what we realized is no matter what we did, if we just said, you know, for example, talk more about, uh, you know, talk more about your feelings, they used more words. Even if we said, talk more about your feelings, it will make you a babe, you know, a chick magnet. You know, you'll, every woman will want to be with you. What the men in our experiments did was they used more words in general, but not more emotion words, right? So they appeared less emotionally aware. Um, And what this meant was not that they experienced emotion less, it's that they labeled emotion in a conventional way less frequently. Yet when you give men emotion words, they use them just as frequently and just as complexly as, as women do. So it's not just what you know, it's also how you use what you know that is important when it comes to uh, emotional intelligence. Yeah, so I really appreciate what you're saying because I think in, in a lot of ways, men have sort of agreed to fall into this category of being less emotionally intelligent because it sort of goes along with the stigmas and the stereotypes of, of masculinity. And, and in a lot of ways, it is, I like your, your description because for me, what I hear is, you know, if you were, if you wanted to, you know, use a, a painting analogy, you can paint with a, a large sort of array of colors, a large palette of colors. You know, if you have a hundred different colors, but you only choose to paint with two or three of them, you're really limiting yourself in terms of what you're going to be able to create versus if you start to use a lot of those different colors, you can start to create a much richer uh, environment on the canvas and and in your life. And so I I really, I really like that, that sort of um, that idea that you've brought to the table. That that's a that's a fantastic analogy, the the painting analogy. And so let me just take that one step further and say sometimes it's important also to know when not to construct an emotion out of strong feelings of affect, right? So if we use the painting analogy, I would say if you're learning to paint uh, in the classical way, like a Dutch realist way, and you want to be able to take Uh, a three-dimensional object like a glass or an apple or a flower and render it on a two-dimensional canvas and have it look realistic, you don't paint the object, paint the object just as you see it, because what you'll get is a pretty crappy looking uh, object on a pretty crappy looking painting on a two-dimensional canvas. If instead what you do though, is you deconstruct the object into pieces of light 
and you paint the pieces of light. So right now I'm looking at a glass and I can see various colors of blue and I can see silver and I can see some green and some white and so on, some gray. Um, If you paint the pieces of light, what you end up getting on your canvas is a pretty decent looking three-dimensional object unless you're me, in which case it will still be a pretty crappy looking object. But, but, um, but what I'm, the point I'm saying here is that the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes it's important to know when not to construct an emotion, right? It's, it's important to, to deconstruct your experiences into their component parts. And this is something that we tend to pathologize in our culture. We tend to say, well, when you uh, experience a physical sensation or a physical symptom instead of an emotion, we tend to diagnose people. But in fact, sometimes it's, it's better for you to realize that that ache in your stomach really is hunger. It's not anger. Sometimes that ache in your stomach really is that, uh, you know, you are tired and not that you're anxious. And in this sense, I think it's possible that men have something to teach women uh, about emotional granularity, because granularity isn't only about painting uh, with uh, a many-colored palette. It's also knowing what to paint, you know, with that palette. Love it. Love it. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication is what comes to mind. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci, some, sometimes it's, it's good to be to have that simplicity. Yeah. In terms of being able to understand our emotions, because this is a lot of what we're talking about, is how how our emotions are constructed in the brain and having that understanding. In terms of being able to understand how they're constructed, does that correlate to us being able to control them better in any way, shape, or form? Or what are we able to do with this understanding? Yeah, it absolutely does. And um, this is something that I talk a lot about in my book. So look, you know, you are never going, no matter what anybody tells you, you're never going to be able to just snap your fingers and feel something different. It's just, we're not wired like that. Uh, It's just really, really difficult to do that. That being said, if you understand that, your past experience becomes the predicted present, right? So your, your brain is using your past experience to make predictions about your immediate future, which becomes your present. Then this means that what you experience today in this moment becomes the seeds for making new predictions in the future. So if you invest a little bit of energy and time in cultivating new experiences in the present, then you're able to control what you feel in the future. In this way, and in a number of ways in which I talk, that I write about in my book, your horizon of control over your emotions is much broader than you might imagine. There are many, many strategies that you wouldn't imagine had anything to do with emotion um, that actually you can use very effectively to be the architect of your own experience. And Another thing I talk about is also how, you know, we very much are social animals. We don't just regulate our own nervous systems. We regulate each other's nervous systems. You know, the best thing for a human nervous system is another human. Mm. And the worst thing for a human nervous system is another human. And so you can also learn how you can influence, how you influence other people 
And you can have much more control over your impact on, on others as well using a number of the strategies that I talk about in my book. Awesome. So good. In, in terms of, and I, I, this kind of, for me, ties into our intimate relationships because it sounds like what you're talking about right now is, is very applicable to our intimate relationships. Can you touch a little bit on, on how the, on this understanding can improve our intimate relationships potentially? Yes, absolutely. I can think of a couple of things. I mean, I talk about this in, in the book, you know, uh, at, at great length, but I can suggest a couple of things uh, right off the bat. So first of all, one important thing to realize is that words, the words that we speak to each other are really powerful. They have very direct effects on, on the nervous system. So you're, as I speak words to you, Connor, your brain is conjuring predictions about what I'm going to say next and what you need to do next, which means that my words have a direct impact on your nervous system. And it turns out this can be, you know, for better or for worse, right? This can actually be helpful in certain ways, but it can also be harmful in, in certain ways. So I think, you know, there's evidence to show really clearly that, you know, the presence of an, of a loved one or somebody that you feel safe with can have miraculous effects. It can actually, you know, decrease the amount of pain that you feel during a painful procedure, for example, because of this control. Um, but it's also the case that, you know, even just a couple of harsh words ha can have a negative effect on the nervous system of a, of a developing child, for example. Harsh words to your spouse, harsh words to your children. Th those aren't, you know, this idea that sticks and stones, you know, break your bones, but names will never hurt you is, is actually not true. Uh, names can actually be really harmful to your brain, really harmful to your nervous system, not in some kind of like bullshit, you know, liberal progressive, way, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, political correctness way, but, I, uh, but, but actually in a really very concrete kind of neurons can die from too much, uh, stress that come from negative, uh, negative thinking and negative, uh, speaking, you know, it, and frankly, broken bones are much easier to heal than neurons are to grow back. So the, the, your words have, a, have an effect. I think that's one thing to, to realize. The second thing to realize is that we don't read emotions in other people like we read words on a page. It feels that way to us, but in fact, we guess. You know, my brain is guessing at what my husband feels. It's guessing in the blink of an eye. It's guessing really automatically and with no effort. So to me, it feels like I know, right? I have a sense of certainty that I know how he feels, especially when my own affect is very strong. But actually, we're just guessing. And I think this is really important, particularly in moments of conflict with your partner, that regardless of your sense of certainty, the truth is that your brain is just guessing, which means that you can be wrong. So this idea that, you know, someone, you know, that your perception of someone is somehow more authentic and correct than their experiences of themselves, there's just no scientific basis for that kind of claim. And the confidence that you feel in, uh, especially in moments of conflict, are not evidence that you're right. <laughs> That's a that's a really good way of putting it. I think I, I mean I can definitely see that in terms of 
past and, and current relationships and a lot of people that I that I've worked with uh, in, in the past as well. Um, just because we're we're running out of time, the one last question I really wanted to touch on because one of the things that I'm fascinated with is artificial intelligence, and. For me, I see a very distinct correlation between the work that you're doing and the research behind, you know, the, the neuroscience of how the brain constructs emotions and how that shows up as being something that could definitely in the future tie into us achieving artificial general intelligence and eventually artificial super intelligence. So has that ever landed on your radar? And and if so, you know, how do you see this research leveraging the uh, or or being able to tie into the advancement of artificial intelligence, which is very baseline right now? Yeah, I get this question a lot when I'm giving talks and so on when I'm speaking to people. And I absolutely think that there are gems of knowledge here that can be used in the AI community. And I know we don't have time to go over all of them, so I'll just give you one. Your brain did not evolve for you to be able to, well, human brain did not evolve so that humans could think or feel or perceive. The, the All brains evolve to control action, to control the body. And what you feel and what you think and what you perceive derive from that regulation of the body. And so the body is present in every, not only every emotion that you have, but every thought that you have, every sight and sound and smell that you have. And so if artificial intelligence is to really take off, my, you know, my first suggestion would be to endow agents with a body because a body is crucial. The systems that in your brain that control your body are at the core of your brain. They are exactly the same systems that launch predictions for every sight and smell and sound and feeling that you have. Hmm. Interesting. And so, so being able to give, being able to give the, the artificial intelligence, quote unquote, brain a body will just help it to be able to process external signals so that it can basically compute it better to translate into emotions? Well, I would say it this way. I would say, you know how you talked about the brain being a pattern generator? Well, without a body, there's a whole huge swath of that pattern that's missing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great way of putting it. Um, Lisa, we got to wrap up, but this has been phenomenal. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you and your work, we'll have the, the, all this in the, in the links and in the bio and whatnot, but where can they go if they want to find out more about you right now at this moment? Yep. They can go to Lisa Feldman Barrett, all one word.com. I have not just links to my books, but also there's a blog, there are um, articles that I've written for the New York Times and other magazines, and there are also some videos that explain some of the key concepts in the book. Wonderful. And for everybody else out there, I would definitely recommend going out and getting a copy of How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. It is an absolutely incredible read. And as you've heard here today, there's some some absolute gems in there, not only for understanding how you function, um, but improving your intimate relationships and your business as well, I would imagine. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. For more podcast episodes, go to mantalks.com. There's also blog posts and videos from our live events. And until week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. I will catch you next week with another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 